Welcome to Decode Cast. Today we're continuing with the Simone Way series. After part one last time, we focused on the metaphysical and theological ideas of Simone Way, and we started to get into Simone Way's political and moral philosophy. And I think today we're going to touch on that to begin with and speak more about some of the more practical ideas that Simone Way came up with. So to start, uh, cute. I was wondering, in your sort of idea of Simone Way's thought, how do you see this bridge that we're going to talk about today, this bridge between the metaphysical and the political? How do you see Simone Way bridging that gap in her work? Yeah, so the way that I read Way um, is that she's not really interested in, like, um, how would I say, like, like a politics in the sense of starting a political movement or party or anything like that um, based off her metaphysics. It's it's almost like the inverse. Um, her metaphysics or her importance of the transcendent uh, is the thing that of her, the object of most importance. And then whichever program, collective group that uh, orients itself towards that transcendent is what she actually cares about. So I believe in her time, she was just kind of a militant leftist because uh, that group was kind of advocating to instantiate a regime or a group by which you could focus or devote your life to the transcendent, um, you know, to, to flourishing in a sense of eudaimonia. And I, and I think that's what makes her... Um, I characterize her as almost like politically agnostic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And I'll just sort of jump on that. I think the the big thing I see that I completely agree with you is there's almost this lexical ordering to the priority of her thought. And I think you nailed it, that it's actually the highest priority of all of our thought, including the moral and political, comes from transcendent considerations or considerations that are universally outside of time come from God, whatever you want to call that. And then I think there's a messianic bridge there where, excuse me, where Vey is using messianic time to bridge the gap between her goals that are transcendent and the empty time of the political and material sphere. And that's sort of the last on the lexical ordering. So in the you know, Paulonian sense, so to speak, she is very much starting from the point of spiritual goals or spiritual concepts. 
And it's from those spiritual concepts that Simone Weil sees messianic and empty time as a means towards the transcendent. Uh, so I think that's a very important consideration because it works so, uh, it's such a reverse of what we would normally consider political or moral philosophy, which sees itself, I think, these days as a means to its own end, that it's almost this infinitely expanding discourse where we're always going to have this sort of empty, you know, tracing of difference that doesn't really lead anywhere, but is simply a trace in and of itself. For, for Ve, there's a teleology here, and I think that's important because it, it really is something that we're not used to, I think, when we're dealing with political philosophy, to kind of reorient our thought towards something that is so abstract that it's, that, you know, some people would say that there's, there's really no application of the theology or metaphysical uh, plane. And yet for Ve, this is the exact opposite. So what, I think the real question we, we should get at is what are sort of the practical considerations that we can trace from the transcendent goals of Ve to her sort of political leanings and political action in her early life? Yeah, I think that that gets, um, and you touched you touched up on this already, which is her very, I would say, her implicit like platonic stance. Um, and what I mean by that is that her position is oriented towards the ultimate good, the ultimate uh, transcendent, which is, in her, uh, you know, theology, if you want to call it that, or in her metaphysical framework, is God. And like we already mentioned, as long as the political community, the individual, the collective, whatever you want to call it, is oriented at that towards sentence, it's, it has that telos, um, then however it chooses to organize itself is kind of secondary. So it, it mm-hmm. it's coming from a framework of, you know, for like first principles, for example, um, in a very like platonic sense, it's an orientation, a high emphasis on um, education, and you can see this in both Awaiting for God, there's a whole chapter dedicated to education. And then um, even in the, the work we were reading primarily for this for this section for episode two on the on the Vey series, um, uh, what is it called? The Abolishment of Political Parties, and that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. She, she has a whole section about uh, education in terms of, um, you know, not aligning yourself towards these tyrannical quote unquote these democratic institutions so to say that they they kind of position themselves as the will of the people but uh you know it's kind of this will of the collective kind of is tyrannical and you know presses the will of the individual um she kind of has this she has this focus on education as a means by which the individual can have reflection uh, of you know reflection of one's self in position to the transcendence and by having that reflection then you can orient or kind of find your own individual telos towards the collective telos so it's kind of this uh, and it seems kind of like a naughty word in our circles nowadays but there is this strict emphasis on hierarchy um, not necessarily on a hierarchy of like 
dominance, but a hierarchy of competence. Right. Right. Exactly. I think that's, that's very well put because it gets at the absolute core of Simone Weil's sort of, uh, you know, proleg, prolegmata, what, what do you call it? Yeah. You know, her sort of, uh, political core concept is this interpretation of Rousseau. And I think you're getting at this idea of Rousseau's general will is very important in Vey's thought. And Vey, you know, subscribes to a Rousseauian sort of social contract theory, but she digs deep into Rousseau's idea of the general will to sort of make clear for us what the general will actually is because for her it doesn't exist yet a will if we go back to rousseau has basically two characteristics and one is that reason is what perceives and sort of differs or sorry reason is what perceives and chooses what is just or what is good right it's it's the rational aspect of man that chooses that and rousseau says reason is thus identical in all men and it's only the passions that differ. So Simone Weil kind of agrees with this, but she draws deep into the implications of this. And basically she says, yes, politics and states should work according to general will. They should work to the collective interest of the people that they're supposed to be serving. But there is no general will if there aren't singular people. And what I mean by singular is people who have their own reason and ideas that are not corrupted or tainted by the totalitarian sort of downloading of political ideology, theology, and all the institutional ideas into one's head. So if you're approaching politics as an individual saying, you know what, I'm a Democrat, I want Democrat things, or you know what, I'm a communist and I want communist things, then you're abdicating the general will because you're not actually coming up with ideas that then get sort of, you know, made into the general will. So the big problem for Wei is to overcome this inherent totalitarianism to political party and political ideology that is stopping us from having a general will. Because right now we do use sort of a mass democratic system, but it's one that is sort of reverse engineered from what the people at the top want. And opinion polling is sort of what replaces the general will under the modern democracy. So when we're talking about education, like you're saying, education is the singular most important aspect of a society because we need to learn to educate ourselves in order to be good citizens, in order to execute an actual general will and not just be influenced by whatever massive interests are at the forefront of your democracy. What do you think of this categorization of the general will? Because it's, it's quite complicated, and yet it's quite optimistic in the potential for democracy. In many ways, I see they as a, a, a democratic anarchist of sorts, someone who believes in the power of the collective only once the individual is actually achieved. Yeah, I think that this maps on to a particular register, or let's say two. The first one would be her very uh, platonic um, you know, lineage, uh, I think that she's coming from a uh, clear, like, Republican lineage of politics, um, very much akin to, um, you know, France's history of uh, revolution, what it means for a democracy to be actually 
competent, which brings me into two other categories, which would be the aesthetic, the politics, the aesthetic politics of France as a whole, which I want to just go ahead and kind of go into that tangent real briefly, which is that I feel like as a whole, uh, France has a very liberal aesthetic in the same way that uh, the United States or the Anglo-Saxon sphere has a very, um, how would I say, like Protestant, uh, like schistic um, aesthetic. And you can see this in how the United States has kind of polarized uh, on many, how would I say, on many, uh, can't think of the word, just in, just in general, it's, it's kind of been this country where it's always been divided on certain issues. And so you constantly see this schisming happening. That's why you see the Protestant movement, things like that. And so in the same way, you have this liberal aesthetic to all the politics in France, just across the board. Um, you see it in writers uh, like Deleuze, who, to me, uh, from a particular register, from a particular way of reading, Deleuze can seem like a crypto-liberal in a way. And I think that's true with uh, writers like Rousseau uh, and then Vey. Um, so just with that in mind, I think that you are right to point out the optimism in kind of this like uh, kind of like this lib this crypto liberalism that's that's found in Vey's writings, where she does put a lot of focus on the individual's um, eudaimonia or flourishing uh, to create a more uh, cohesive collective, a collective that knows where it's going, that knows its telos. Um, but that's only possible within the optimization of the individual. So it's kind of like this. Um, it's kind of like these two, these two modalities working in hand. You have this bot, this top-down, transcendent to our world politics. So the emphasis is on the metaphysics, as opposed to the material conditions. Uh, to use Marx, <laughs> Marxian uh, terminology, but at the same time it is contingent on the individual's education and flourishing. Um, so in that sense, it's very much like Plato's Republic, where you have, um, you know, these individuals who are kind of, um, you know, since, since, since birth, you know, taught what values are taught to orient themselves towards the transcendent. Um, and so you have these two these two modes of governance almost working hand in hand. Right. Yeah. I think you touch on several very interesting things there. One I want to get back to is this idea that they herself calls herself a Neoplatonist and is very clearly a Neoplatonist. Yet she has a very particular take on Neoplatonism that we'll get to in a moment. And I would love to talk to that about you. But just going off of the... Uh, the idea of the general will and what you were just saying about the individual is, you know, wait, they says that the general will is conditioned on something and she's optimistic at the general will if it fulfills this condition. If individuals are choosing between ideas and not simply choosing between organizations or political parties or institutions that will represent their ideas, there needs to be a sort of taking out of the middleman, right? And they has a, a really great quote on page 10 of uh, all political parties must be abolished. And she says, we have never known anything that resembles, however faintly, a democracy. We pretend our present system 
is democratic. Yet the people, the chance nor the means to express their views on any problem of public life. Any issue that does not pertain to parts, to particular interests is abandoned to collective passions, which are systematically and officially inflamed. So very, very much predicts the problems of democracy that we see today of, you know, the, the ease of inflaming the public or manipulating the public to reach certain aims and points out early in the in the sort of post-World War II democratic society, or I guess, you know, during World War II democratic society, that this is not a democracy, that this is sort of a sham of a democracy, and that we pretend that we have a democracy while we all secretly know that we're not the ones who do any real choosing, that we're the ones who are basically the cogs in a wider, you know, plutonic system of money, wealth, interest, and institutions being the democracy that we think is about the people. So I think you, you really kind of touched on exactly what they sees as the conditions of the general will. But I think this actually goes to your point of Neoplatonism. You know, there's a lot of Neoplatonic ideas in Simone Weil's thought and a lot of ideas from Plato's Republic, you can see kind of clearly in her political thought. But one idea that I think she, she very much rejects is the Platonic idea of a philosopher king or that people need a philosopher king. Simone Weil actually sees that as bad. She says, basically, we should all be philosopher kings. We should all have the ability and the intellect and the means to make choices according to the ideas as we see fit. We should have that potential, right? But there's another strain, I think, of Neoplatonism that represents sort of this dialectic, whereas they is sort of an all or nothing person, you know, either we're all going to succeed, we're all going to be, you know, in God's kingdom, or no one is. Whereas what we see with current sort of Platonic thought is the sort of Nietzschean and Randian interpretation, where because there's no general will, the people, the spiritual and economic elites say, well, people are too stupid to make these decisions, so we need to make them for them right? That democracy is bad because people will always be stupid. There'll always never be a general will. So there's sort of a breaking off, you could call it a Zarathustran sort of leaving of humanity, or sort of the Atlas Shrugged model of, you know, why don't we just leave since we're better than everyone else? So we sort of have this split where the current system to me follows a more Nietzschean vitalism of sort of will to power and conquering being the primary force of political motivation. And Vey, she takes Platonism to the exact opposite end in my mind, where she's a Christian Platonist, you know, or I, I think a better word is Catholic, Catholic meaning, you know, universal or completely open. She's truly trying to find a universal form of political liberation instead of a particular form of individual liberation from the political. I think you touched up on a lot of things that I want to go through. So I'm going to try to go through all of them um, and see if I can remember them. Because I think the one that really caught my attention was your, um, your in mine, I would suppose, the understanding of Neoplatonism, implicit in Ve, which I think you're 100% right. It's more of a, um, well, it's more of a Christian Platonism 
um, or as you, you mentioned, a Catholic Platonism, which is that she's using a kind of a Catholic eschatology to map out her praxis in a way. Um, and that's really evident with the writings in uh, Awaiting for God, where there's an interest in the afflicted, you know, those who uh, have affliction to their, not not just in a material, physical sense, but as well as a, as a you know, their soul in a, in a, in a you know, in a more metaphysical sense, to, to use that word um, colloquially. Um, but I want to go ahead and touch up on the, the Nietzschean will to power, which um, you kind of touched up on, which was, um, I think you're 100% right in the sense that I think that the kind of giving up your individual will or your individual freedom, for example, to one transcendental node, which would be like the philosopher king, or in this case, a political party, um, either of Marxist uh, leniency or uh, right-wing leniency or whatever, would be almost the antithesis of what they would, would actually want. What they wants is the flourishment, flourishment of the individual to be able to go ahead and, um, how would I put this, um, maximize their own individual cognitive faculties to the point where they are optimized within the collective. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of want to tie this into this idea of like the... Uh, who is it? I think it's a scholar, Gail Feynman, who mm. um, her idea of the platonic system. Okay, so the platonic forms uh, is a system of forms which, as a collective, all make the form of the good. So the form of the good itself is the entire system of all of the forms. Um, so it's not that they create a higher form and that's the form of the good, it's that the entire collective, the entire you know, like you could say the network or the mesh of the forms is the form of the good. I think that's in the same way what Vey is almost advocating. You mentioned this like anarcho um, or this anarchist thought or this anarchist underpinning under all of Vey's work. And I think you're 100% right on that. It's almost like a um, patchwork that she's advocating for, but not a patchwork in the sense of more anarchy or more destratification. Um, it's anarchist in the sense of um, like self-determination right. to like the ultimate, like to, to its ultimate conclusion. So um, there's, there's no way to kind of come about or to instantiate a true sense of self-determination if you don't kind of fail or uh, impose your will on the world, kind of create space mm-hmm. or take up space um, to impose your self-sovereignty in a way. And, and, and they is advocating for some sort of, you know, rigorous self-sovereignty. Um, you know, she, she cares so much about the individual, about the individual's reflection in their place in society, as opposed to, like you mentioned, simply just saying, well, I'm a Marxist, I'm just going to go for the you know, the Marxist, uh, selling pitch. Um, right. We've already kind of tackled that in previous podcasts where it's like, it's that whole notion of being against like the priestly class, for example, of going against, oh yeah, well the the material conditions need to be ripened enough to, to kind of start the revolution in a way of a saying you wouldn't know how to instantiate the revolution. Um, 
if you right. if you haven't reached a, a competent sense of self-determination of what that even looks like to you to your people right yeah i think that comes through like you're saying that the anarchism comes from this this absolute faith they has in the inviolable dignity and potential of the human individual and their soul mixed with the idea that institutions political parties and collective you know organizations are inherently you know satanic and totalitarian and you know she explicitly labels the sort of you know political machines or institutional machines the beast because she sees them as inherently stifling the dignity and potential of the human spirit and she thinks this because she sees the political parties in their material form as an inversion of ends and means whereas for her the political party and institution should serve as the means to some transcendent end the political party takes as its end the means itself it starts to determine that the end is its own survival and dominance in the material world and therefore always has this moral entropy inherent to it where uh, political parties are totalitarian no matter what they are and so we have to think so what for they is a revolution you know she does have these revolutionary spirits she she fights you know for a revolution of sorts right so what does it look like for her well she sees the vanguard party idea as a sort of satanic liberation a liberation from one form of shackles into a much darker darker soul crushing form of it so for ve a revolution basically looks like every individual educating themselves to the level of collective emancipation right now education has to come from a collective and an individual standpoint but education is about the individual it's about fostering singularity of the individual not about filling up individuals with the proper ideas the right information and the right ideologies yeah i think you're you know touching up on a really important point which is um how that ties into self-sovereignty in a way um i've already brought this up but just to kind of make it more explicit it's, it's almost something that we're seeing a lot just to kind of make an allusion to um for example web 3.0 and things that are happening right now and just like the the crypto space and things like that um for example there seems to be like this dynamic shift into the importance of you know having a concrete or definite online identity um owning things online like owning your data things like that um and i feel like this echoes like almost like vey's work kind of preeminently uh sets up a lot of the framework for these things that we that we're focusing on now on on, on the internet which is that there, there is this sense of you know what does it mean for you to be an individual this you know this not atomized but this singularity point um you know mixing or you know connecting with other peers or other singularities and then what that means to instantiate a group or a collective or just a society and so uh, there is this very important sense of of individual sovereignty that i think uh, is implicit in vey's work and i think that's what kind of like this 
the central note of just anarchism in general, which is that it's not about the collective's will and it's not about the individual's like absolute freedom. It's what that what it means, like you already mentioned, to educate yourself to find your own mediation of uh, what you would consider emancipatory or emancipation. Right. Um, I think this comes to to the point where, you know, Vey says that only an empty soul can receive God's grace or can receive truth in many ways. So anything that's trying to fill up an individual's mind or to sort of clutter that emptiness or fill it is essentially, you know, acting against God's grace. And in this way, this sort of weird Buddhist Christian version of grace and of God, I think comes almost explicitly from Vey's sort of you know, Judaism that she keeps rather clandestine in her writings. She mentions Kabbalah often, but is not keen on calling herself a Jew. In fact, she she kind of abdicates her Judaism quite explicitly in many books and, and is sort of, you know, anti her, her old Judaism. And yet there are certain strains of Jewish mysticism that are overtly apparent in her work. And I think the biggest one is her Kabbalistic idea of God as the Einsof. And the Einsof in Kabbalah is the God that can never be named because it's pure creative nothing. It's pure creative potential that comes from what we consider nothing. For me, that's what Vey is getting at when she wants the individual or the soul to empty itself. To sort of reach that Einsofic God is the quest for truth. God is this emptiness that somehow it's something from nothing. It's that point in which the individual is no longer trying to order itself. It's simply receiving something that it has no control over. And in that way, I think it's interesting to see Vey as this uh, patchwork of thought, this sort of series, a trace of a soul across many schools of thought that were popular in her, her time and, you know, entrenched in her ancestral, uh, you know, history. So it's, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint what exactly Simone Fey is, you know, you can call her an anarchist, a Christian, a Jewish mystic, you know, all of these things I think are, are accurate in some degree. But I think if we take Vey at her word, we see that she was sort of the the type of individual, the pure singular individual that she wanted to be. Because I think out of this patchwork, you get a true singularity, a true unique perspective that she's achieved by sort of shedding a lot of the tradition that she was a part of, but of sort of in the Hegelian sense, negating the negation of going through everything and denying it and emptying herself, but then realizing what is truth, you know? And she says that, you know, you can only reach truth when an individual is purely focused on it, wants nothing else, is emptying the soul and is seeking pure truth. And I think that's very important for way, but it's also very important for the individual who wants to be liberated, that there needs to be this, um, you know, there's in, in old enlightenment thought, I like the word they, they sort of translated, they called autolysis, which is a, a digestion of the self, you know? You have to kind of eat metaphorically yourself and have it go through you 
if you're going to truly understand yourself. Or in ways, in Vey's words, you won't, you can't know truth if you have no knowledge of it, right? You need to experience all of these things in order to know the truth of them. Yeah, I think that you're, I mean, touching up a lot of points that are kind of, like I was mentioning earlier, like imminent to French thought, um, which I feel like there's this, I mean, this obvious connection I feel between Vey's work and um, someone like Deleuze, you know, I, you're echoing a lot of things that just sound like body with, how do you make yourself into a body without organs? Right. Uh, you know, deterritorializing yourself, things like that. Um, but ultimately, um, I think the one that I want to focus on, which would be, uh, you mentioned earlier about Vey kind of advocating for everyone to be kind of like this philosopher king. Um, which would be, in a way, it's like, yeah, like you mentioned, this patchwork of a person, this true singularity that you can make yourself into, that, to her, is what I think, I think James Joyce is the one that writes this about the, finding the universal in the individual, or in the particular. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which... I mean that's that that is what it is you know that 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 is what that means it's it's kind of this like you mentioned this it is uh creating yourself in, or making yourself into a body without organs or dipping into absolute um this creative force kind of going into nothingness or um the the tao uh you know just kind of eroding your ego um and then constructing something from there or you know um just kind of going to absolute negation um, that is the process by which you, you actually can create something, um, new or unique, uh, or the moment of, you know, the, the amor fati of difference. That is when different, that's when difference can, can come again. Um, and you see this kind of pop up in not just Deleuze, not just Simone Weil, uh, but in other French writers, um, even someone like Lyotard, uh, so, I think it's kind of important to flush out, like you mentioned, this historical lineage, but also this kind of like this this aesthetics, the aesthetics of uh, politics in France at the time, um, because I think that helps understand this concept of where do we find ourselves, at least here in the United States, where do we find ourselves politically, how to map out that register, and then how to instantiate our politics within the limited constraints within our current political strata. Um, and, and I think that, you know, maximizing that our individual faculties, our individual understanding, uh, you know, creating an assemblage of a unique perspective is the way forward of, you know, being emancipatory as opposed to trying to uncover past territories and, see if bootstrap them to our current praxis to see if it sticks or if it works it's, it's it's much more than that i think it's mapping out our territories what do our territories look like and what does making ourselves into a body without organs look like in our landscape in the united states that is kind of like at the core of uh like our neo neo-vitalistic project so to say yeah that's exactly what i was going to touch on i think that's exactly points to kind of one of the bigger ideas that we talk about on this podcast and that sort of foster is this sort of strain of neo-vitalism that I see Simone Weil as one of the 
key, if not the key thinker of sort of this neo-vitalistic impulse. And I think a lot of it in the beauty of her writing comes from the sheer vital intensity of what she's trying to do in such a short time. Because she's so involved in the vital sort of fight for Europe at the time and is trying to figure everything out so quickly, there's some deep vitality to her thought and a desire to foster vitality for everyone else that comes across as, you know, almost a, as a as an instance of God's grace, as an instance of, of the pure human spirit manifested. And I think that's what really draws me to Vey. And, and I know it, it draws you as well, but it's also what connects her to these other thinkers that we're talking about, especially these sort of French vital post-structuralist movement, but also, you know, thinkers from across the ages and what they were trying to do from, you know, Plato to, you know, leotard it's 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 a strain of thought that that truly seeks to create a form of life that is most vital for people and for society and i think there's something not just you know good so to speak in that or or helpful there's something you know truly practical in creating a form of life that's going to allow you to live your most vital life. And I think it's important for philosophy and for theory to have these kinds of stakes, to have liberatory stakes for the maximum amount of liberation and not simply for a certain form of re-territorialization, whether it be sort of Marxism, Leninism, or Maoism. The, the spirit of vitality to me is timeless, it's purely universal because it achieves singularity. And there never is going to be something, you know, more transcendent than singularity itself. And so I think with with Wei, with Wei we get a real tour de force and possibly one of the last sort of universal thinkers of a universal field of knowledge where, you know, for Vey, nothing is separated. No field of knowledge is too, you know, far off from what she's thinking about to be drawn in. And there's no, you know, field of, of thought that is off limits if it means furthering the vitality of the human spirit. And for me personally, I see that as sort of something that I uh, sort of, you know, sympathize with as sort of the, the meta-ethical imperative of what it means to be a neo-vitalist and of why we're thinking in the first place.
I can perceive myself as an individual. 
I think it's important to kind of flush out some of the neo-vitalism because I think, for example, there's that like Nietzschean or, you know, Deleuzean vitalism, which kind of, um, I would say has very implicit or explicit, I should say, um, implications. Because I think vitalism, by most intents and purposes, is a materialist framework, um, just in the sense that, you know, when we talk about vitalism, it's really the material forces of a living organism. So in, in the sense of both Nietzsche and, and Deleuze, it's what are the capacities of the human animal, for example? Um, what does, what you know, how far can the human go, for example? And that that's where he echoes kind of Spinoza's whole, we still don't know what a body can do. And I think it's important to flush out the the notion, or maybe maybe this is more my definition of what I understand soul or spirit to be, and maybe you can uh, see if you can flush out your your definition. I think we're working on a very similar one, but but by what I, I understand as soul is that multiplicity, um, that that multiplicity or that body without organs of your potential self across all, you know, you, you could say all possible worlds or, um, you know, collection of monads, um, that singularity point, which I think is only understood or, um, has been really fully developed from within a, um, spiritualist or dualist, um, even Christian metaphysics or framework is that notion of like that virtuality, that potential self, that singularity point that mm -hmm. is what maybe soul to me maybe that's what soul to you maybe you're using the same definition but as far as i see it that's what i that's what i mean by soul and, and when I, we mentioned the acceleration of the soul for example it's the, the acceleration of that um locking onto one of those multiplicities locking onto one of those potential selves and kind of bootstrapping or propelling yourself to to that end um and in the sense it's it's almost like that you know that self of that multiplicity is a body without organs because it's it's amorphous it can really be anything you can kind of there's an infinite potential right there um but in and let's say you focus in on one of those you you re-territorialize or you territorialize to, to to some degree uh there is a telos to get to that point um so you there is a point where you actually have to start making very definite decisions um, right. and limit that potential so it's it's an understanding of that potential but at the same time once you once you understand that it's kind of this pure potentiality and so at the same time it's nothing once you understand that it's kind of building towards that it's kind of bootstrapping yourself projecting yourself and then launching to that designated target and mm -hmm. so that's what i i think that that's important, not just in Simone's baby in Simone Vey's work, because I think that's where her register is too. I think she understands that the only way to the transcend it is that you don't have a direct connection to it. That's her notion of metaxu. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a mediation of it. There is there is like a maximization of the the you know the the carnal self or the, you know this this the state that we find ourselves in this receptacle. Um, of kind of maximizing that entity or that individual from a materialist framework, but 
through maximizing that you have metoxia or you have this relationship although not direct relationship you do have this relationship to this transcendent other to the outside and right um yeah i think that's that's what i understand by soul i guess i think that's a really deep point um about the soul and i i think i'm going to just agree with that and my own ideas is sort of the soul like you're saying is sort of a potentiality it's the body without organs it's the potential for the human spirit for the human soul to be whatever it wants to be or to achieve whatever it sets itself out to be the paradox is that the more you think the more ideas you have about the world and about yourself the less potential you have to be something else right and you know someone kind of points out that the soul dies when it creates these big labyrinths of ideas and concepts that, that trap its potential and just sort of withers away inside of itself. And so we see that the vitality of the soul comes from the level of potential it has to be, to become is, is the word to use it. And so what's important, I think, about the soul is the paradox that in order for the soul to grow, it needs to sort of be emptied continually, right? Because as Walter Benjamin says organization resembles destiny and the more organized your soul is the more faded it is and so vey points out that paradox you know in, in a way that's that i think makes sense despite the you know uh koanic nature of the problem where you have sort of this this you know, paradox of potential where you think that you're growing and your thinking and your learning is going to increase your potential, but really it's limiting it. And yet you need to learn and you need to organize yourself. And you're kind of caught in that double bind. And I think neo-vitalism is, is sort of the idea of charting a way through that, of the proper way of maintaining vitality and of avoiding, uh, you know, the constriction of the soul across time and space. And now the, the other thing I, I, I want to kind of touch on, and I think something we should, we should do an episode on um, that I'm really interested in is, is, you know, this is my idea and it's very subjective. Our idea is very subjective about the soul, but I do believe that there is such thing as possibly a necrovitalism of a potential of the death drive instinct to instantiate something that's truly unique or singular. And I think Nick Land very much would fit what I would call this necrovitalism of the expansion of the potential of the inhuman at the expense of the human. Now, I personally don't think that that's a very smart or moral or you know, thoughtful way to go about living, but I, I, I can see how there's a potential on the opposite polar side as well that I think is worth exploring. Yeah, I think you touch up on a lot of things um, that necrovitalism definitely it seems like a catalyst for just acceleration um mm -hmm. in general um either of the inhuman forces by which we can reconstitute the, the human uh or humanism in general just the, as a catalyst by which you know it's kind of like the notion of the via negativa which is you know how to do the right thing by <laughs> fully rigorously flushing out how not to do it mm -hmm. um and so there's different avenues and i think you know there's there's kind of this recursive this this recursive level of thought um 
which is kind of like the cyclical notion of um, of kind of like knowledge, for example. I, I, a lot of the things that you kind of mentioned echo some of the like the works of Plotinus, for example, which is you know mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know getting rid of the body to kind of get closer to to the one. Um, and I feel like a lot of that is almost found in Nick Land's work. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like the AI singularity in a lot of ways is, is Plotinus's one. Um, you know, and he wants to, Nick Land wants to discard of the human as much as Plotinus wanted to discard of like the the receptacle of the, the human body, for example. Um, yeah. So there's those, maybe that's just kind of like an illusion or maybe a connection that I made. But um, in terms of that, I think I think you're absolutely correct in sense of there's this limitation of trying to be too rigorous and and charting out potentials and like reaching like what we would constitute as emancipation and i think a lot of leftist movements kind of get bogged down on this which is the hyper importance of praxis for example it's like if you're not doing it this way then you're not actually an ally or blah 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 um and I think that is when you have, you know, like philosophical or like suicide of the soul, for example, which is mm-hmm. you no longer care to map out or chart out, uh, as Deleuze and Guattari point out in A Thousand Plateaus. And, you know, it's called A Thousand Plateaus. It's a book about ethics because you are, you know, it's that schizophrenic potential of, of, of creativity, of difference, which is, you know, just constantly charting out, but not aligning yourself to that process it's almost like to use a Heideggerian term, it's like design, just understanding that you're a living thing, for example, mm-hmm. just coming to that realization and kind of emptying it and emptying out being as such, and then constituting a way forward from that zero. So constantly, you know, Heidegger does recognize design as this process of reconstitution of being, for example, it's not like once you uncover design or you you find out what, true being is like it's not that you somehow become enlightened heidegger explicitly does see it as this process and so to kind of kind of make a connection to deleuze and guattari's work it's this you know design could almost or even the negation of the ego in, in buddhist terms would be making yourself a body without organs and then continuously doing this process never fully integrating yourself to one territory which is mm-hmm. um you know that is a way to live. That that is neo vital. That is vitalistic. That is neo vitalistic in a sense. Yeah, I think I think that's a really great point, and I think we can kind of make the comparison. Or you know, this is something we could definitely. I want to talk more about is I, I think you kind of point out that there's there's the possibility of a right hand path vitalism versus a left hand path vitalism, just as there is in magic. And I think so. The right hand path is like a, a vey who understands that you need to empty the soul in order to become not just a good individual but to be you know helpful to your society to your god so on and so forth there's sort of a unification but it has to come at the expense of or sort of through the process of the negation of the individual and the negation of passion for that particular pleasure right whereas the left-hand path the sort of landian uh vitalism just like in magic the left-hand path is sort of about you know uh getting rid of your association or like your pity for human beings or your pity and your importance for, for, you know, your own subjective 
stuff, you know, your own subjective people and personhood and, and whatnot. And I think land sort of has that left-hand path where, you know, it's all about like orgiastic pleasure, speed to the point of absolute inoculation to the idea of being human at all. You know, the idea of nothing human makes it out of the near future is very much a left-hand path idea that, you know, that there's some sort of vitality in getting rid of the limitations that you inherit from sort of just become, you know, being born a human and living, you know, with the pity of a humankind. So I think it's interesting to consider vitalism as dynamic or as dual that, you know, it's not just the good vitalism and the bad vitalism, the vitalism is a process or is a strategy that can be approached from many different ways from your subjective opinion in the same way that say like the other universal theories of, of knowledge and morality like magic or hermeticism or Kabbalah all have that sort of left-hand, right-hand dynamic where there's really no objective moral you know, denunciation of one side or the other. It's simply here are the two paths. They both get to a similar place. They're just different processes. They're different choices that are left up to the individual. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what uh, we we were talking about this earlier on Twitter about the double articulation brought about in A Thousand Plateaus. And I think mm-hmm. uh, that's just kind of an easy way to kind of illustrate that left hand, right hand, which is, you know, there's an atemporal process of double articulation, um, which the, the, it's like, it's just a plethora. It's a, it's kind of like the, to kind of make a connection, it's it's the hydra. You cut off one, one head mm-hmm. and two come in its place and it's this recursive process um that's that's vitalism and it and it takes different forms it takes the form of not just material like organic vitalism but that's also a, a vitalism of the soul of uh if you want to take a spinozian approach of the um the attribute of thought the attribute of you, you know of the soul for example yeah i think that's really important I think this this episode is very helpful, hopefully for the listeners in uh, charting out what you and I are are sort of trying to do with this podcast about the ideas that we're trying to decode and sort of present as perhaps we could call it neo vitalism. Um, but I, I think it, it it's this episode will be great um, going forward. I I think hopefully. Uh, we'll be doing difference in repetition next where we're going to sort of make this jump from the things we've been talking about in Simone Vey, but in really analyzing the sort of uh, process of uh, double articulation that we're getting at here an actual sort of, you know, look under the hood at some of the concepts that we've been talking about, but from the perspective of a mechanic so to speak. And so I'm really excited going forward to expand on some of these ideas, but I hope that listeners uh, can sense a bit of a sort of, uh, not trend, but a a sort of, you know. Like a trajectory. Exactly, a trajectory to what we're trying to do that kind of combines everything that we're talking about into one trajectory.
into something that we're trying to achieve. And I think Simone Weil might be the best, you know, expression of the type of thought that we're trying to put out into the world. So I've really enjoyed the Simone Weil series and I'm really excited to see, you know, where the Deleuze Difference in Repetition series goes. But, um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for talking yeah. about Simone Weil with me, man. I've had a great time reading her with you. Thank you. Yeah, same here. Um, uh, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Young, any last parting words? Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Decode is back better than ever. We'll be uh, sticking to a, a relatively more frequent posting schedule. Um, but we really appreciate all of our listeners. And uh, I've gotten you know several people reach out uh, you know, just via Twitter DMs to talk about some of the things that, you know, we talk about on the podcast. And I really appreciate that. And it means a lot to me to hear from the fans and whatnot. And to talk to people about these ideas uh, has been really remarkable. So reach out if you ever feel like it. Um, and we love all of you. Thank you so much for listening. And we're very excited to be bringing you some new, really exciting episodes in the next few months special thanks to our patreons because we have some now uh want to go ahead and mention at a block unchained thank you so much for your contribution at Hieronaut, thank you and spaceport 16 so i want to thank our three patreons without you guys we probably wouldn't be able to maintain the podcast at a more regular and consistent level so thank you so much for your support Time for